Ready. Set. Spartan Race is back for 2018, and we're accepting no excuses. Barbed wire crawls, tire drags, spear throws, and much more. Whatever your ability, you'll discover the right challenge for you. Take on our 5 to 25 kilometer events designed to push you to limits you never knew you could overcome. Complete an obstacle course race and let adventure back into your life. Are you ready to unleash your inner Spartan warrior? Visit spartanrace.uk. Tonight's show, we've got a fantastic lineup of guests, starting with an exclusive one-on-one with Emily Walden from the Athletic Detroit. She's a minor league writer and also does player evaluation for 28 Baseball, and is someone who's going to drop in to talk to me a little bit about the state of the Blue Jays from a minor league perspective. And then we're going to unleash a round table your way, consisting of Dow of Steve from Sportsnet, Jesse Goldberg-Strasler, the voice of the Lansing Lugnuts, and joining us for the first time on the show is producer John Reed from the Fan 590. The three of these gentlemen stop by to talk about baseball-related things. More importantly, what concerns you as a Blue Jays fan. In particular, what does the trade of Giancarlo Stanton mean to this franchise moving forward? And what exactly are Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins thinking of now that the winter meetings have started in terms of upgrading some of the serious, serious depth requirements that this team has moving into the new year, and you're going to hear a lot about that. We're going to be talking about the glass half full and the glass half empty. There's going to be a lot of speculation, a lot of theorization, commiseration as to what the Blue Jays should do, and I assure you that a lot of it, if not all of it, is purely speculative based on exactly what's happening at the time of day and what the temperature's like outside, because that's how unpredictable things are. Who knows what could happen next? But one thing's for sure. If you're prepared as a fan to understand the ramifications of these decisions, and that's why we've got all these guests for you to help do that, you might be able to walk into 2018 thinking that as a fan, you've got something to look forward to. And the truth is, you do. This team has bona fide pitching on all fronts. That isn't something that you have to necessarily get cynical about as a fan coming off of a tough year, or if you're one of these contrarians and uh, naysayers who likes to talk about how the Blue Jays stink for this reason or that reason, I've got news for you. This team as it is right now will ultimately be the kind of team that if management goes out and upgrades at key positions in areas that you experienced last year as being ones that unfortunately contributed to that 76-win season, be aware that the Blue Jays will not be as battered and injured as they were last year for this upcoming season. And if they do get the kind of depth needed, this team has a chance to not only contend for the wild card spot, and if there's one thing we've learned in professional sports, once you get into the postseason, anything truly is possible. My next guest here on the Jays Journal podcast is a writer for The Athletic who covers the Detroit Tigers minor league system and also does video and player evaluation for 2080 Baseball. I'm thrilled to welcome Emily Walden to the podcast. Emily, thanks for joining me this evening. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
The pleasure is all mine. I've had a chance to follow you for the last few weeks in particular, and I love what I'm seeing. I love the way that you're able to assess talent, trends, what's happening down on the farm. You know, we talked about it earlier um, off microphone, off camera, as they say, about how that's an important part of fans having confidence and faith in the future of their organization, their major league team being able to head in a specific direction that they can appreciate. When you look at the Blue Jays minor league system, Emily, I want to know your perception of the minor league system after Keith Law's huge validation endorsement of Guerrero, Vlad Guerrero Jr. as the best minor league prospect, along with all the heady praise that's been given to Bo Bichette. What should my listeners know from an outsider's perspective, outside of Canada, and one who covers a different team as to where the Blue Jays stand in the relative scheme of things when it comes to minor league talent and promise? Yeah, I would say that the Blue Jays system overall shows a very good eye from the front office with an ability to spot sharp talent. Um, I think along with Guerrero and with Bichette, both, there's multiple other names within the system that have started to really kind of hit their stride developmentally, some really good arms. Um, A lot of guys who spent time with uh, AA New Hampshire this year who are kind of starting to come into their own and I think that Toronto fans really have a good um, a good prop to look forward to, if you will. Um, some really mm-hmm. young guys who are developing at a good pace. Um, Anthony Alford is another one. You know, obviously he faced some challenges after his call-up to the Blue Jays, but he's been absolutely terrorizing down in the Mexican Winter League. So that's something else for people to look forward to, and I think there's definitely a lot to be excited about. Now, the, the casual fan will be familiar with the delicious promise of what will happen in 2019 when Bichette and Guerrero look to get their first cup of coffee, if you will. I think we can both agree it's probably not going to happen next year, unless, of course, things go horribly wrong and they become a September call-up. But Anthony Alford, Emily, isn't he a real X factor? I mean, this is a name that we've heard that's been linked with the future of the Blue Jays for quite some time now. And by all accounts, he's got the talent the, the ability to do it, why have we not seen him yet, and how confident are you that after this winter uh, schedule of baseball, he might be ready finally for prime time at spring training 2018? Oh, I think he's in a fantastic position. Um, I got to speak to him after he suffered his injury when he was reassigned to AA New Hampshire. We had a chance to sit down and talk for a while And one of the things that really makes him stand out above the rest of the group is he has probably one of the best attitudes I've ever met in a player. Um, He's Hmm. constantly positive, constantly looking ahead, and he is an absolute pure athlete. And so I think just that pure athleticism, the fact that he will not take a negative outlook even when he faces the injury that he faced, he understands what he needs to work on. Um, I think... Part of some of the struggle that he might have seen at the end of the year, I think it was mainly mental, which I think any time you suffer an injury like that, you're going to have a little bit of uh, ground to cover to get back to where you were. And with him, I think it's the fact that he knows himself extremely well, and he'll acknowledge if he has an area he needs to polish. He's been working on that, and he's going to absolutely come screaming out of the gate after spring training. So I think he has a very, very good chance of making the big league roster. To, to say nothing of the timing, I would imagine, the last thing I think he'd want to do is compete for a job in 2019 when there'll be a lot more media attention on the two 
if you will, more anticipated names. So needless to say, in terms of opportunity, this is about as good as it gets, isn't it, considering the Blue Jays' outfield situation heading into spring training next year? I would definitely agree with you. And I think knowing the struggle that he went through to get past that injury, I think that's only really inspired him more to move ahead and to apply himself that much tighter to his position. And he is one of the toughest, most competitive guys that I've met in you know, meeting the different players around the league. So if anybody can do it, Anthony absolutely can. And I think his performance down in Mexico so far has really been a tale of that. So really it's going to be a lot of fun watching him when spring comes. Now I'd like to get your kind of general thoughts, if you will, on this Blue Jays offseason so far. Um, the last few episodes of the podcast have had scores of, of guests uh, comprising different roundtables where we all seem to eventually get to the point where there's some uh, lamentation or commiseration of what the Blue Jays aren't doing or what they should be doing. Do you have faith in the front office and their ability to rebound from last year's circumstances to field an actual playoff team in 2018? Is it something you think is realistic? You know, I will say I think it is realistic, but I think it's going to have to be approached from a very strategic perspective. Um, I think some of the stronger talent, much like the Tiger system, is still a bit further back. Um, and because of that, it's going to take a lot of very strategic off-season work to put the right pieces into place to be able to come out confidently when spring training comes. And so I think they're in a good position to be able to make it happen, but I think ultimately it's going to depend what choices they make as a front office, who they decide to pursue, where they decide to put their money, and then be able to see what that end result will be. But I think it's it's a possibility, I will say that, but it's going to take some, some strategy to be able to achieve it. Now, now, as someone who covers the Detroit sports landscape, you can appreciate what it's like to have multiple franchises from different sports all be successful at the same time. And I'm sure you'll agree that right now what's happening in Toronto is extraordinary in that virtually every other sport is seeing uh, the right trending direction, if you will, whether it's the Argos or TSC or the Raptors and, of course, the Toronto Maple Leafs. Do you think that adds additional pressure to the ownership group and to the custodians of the team to make sure that fans don't end up treating baseball in Toronto as like a redheaded stepchild? I think it definitely lights a bit of a fire for sure. I think that it's going to push them to want to say, you know, we're looking around at what everyone else is doing around the city and they don't want to be left behind. You know, I think no good ownership group should want to be left behind. They want to be able to match pace. They want to be able to give pride to the city, you know, and as we can, you know, circle back to Detroit again, it's something (laughs) that it does not go away. The fans will not let you forget it. They will not stop sharing their opinions. And so I think any good ownership group is going to analyze how did the year go, what areas did we really need to focus Mm -hmm. on that maybe we didn't focus on, and then moving into next year, how do we rectify that stuff? How do we make it better? How do we put ourselves in a better position to accomplish something? And with Toronto, I mean, everybody and their brother got injured. I was just waiting to see who else was going to run into a wall or trip over something. Or, I mean, it's getting to the point where I was contacting my, my Toronto um, media friends and saying, is, is someone setting up booby traps on the field? Like, what is the deal over there? And so, of course, you know, when it comes to injury, you, you can't really have any say in that. That's going to happen. I mean, those things, that's part of the game. 
you know, it's part of baseball, it's part of any sport. But as long as, as an ownership group, they're aware of the situation and they're aware of what needs to be changed, I think they can put themselves in a much better position going into next season. And how much of it do you attribute outside of the injuries to, let's say, player aggression or underachievement? Because as you know, there were key positions last year that literally provided no wins above replacement. I, of course, am talking about right field, DH, uh, second base, shortstop. It was gruesome to think that almost half of the lineup wasn't getting even average production, and yet this team still finished with 76 wins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's something that, again, I think it just really comes down to analyzing how things played out and saying, you know what, this is how, you know, going position by position if you have to, saying this is where mm-hmm. we saw production, this is where we didn't see production. And I know, you know, again, in the case of a team where maybe some of their, their richer talent is still a bit of a ways away, you have to get creative. You have to figure out ways to fill those gaps you know, and to, to stick the finger in the dam, so to speak, to make sure it's not an issue for the following season. So it's something that they're going to have to approach very carefully and approach it from, you know, a very aware standpoint to be able to improve it going into next year. So does that mean you're confident in the former two-time G- executive of the year, Mark Shapiro, and having the the vision and leadership to do that. What's what's your take on him as as a as a leader who, for all intents and purposes, is basically the president and the GM? You know, I would say that I do have the confidence that it could happen. But I think, as cliche as it sounds, every good leader has to have the right people around him to make it happen Amen. and to find the success. So, I think if he's able to keep an open mind, um, as long as people in that position can stay open, they can listen to ideas. Because you never know who's going to come up with a fresh perspective and say, you know what, this is where we struggled last year. Why don't we try this this year? And it may be something you never even thought of. So keeping an open mind going into next season, I think it's going to be key. And then seeing how it unfolds from there. Emily, what should fans of the Blue Jays know about this Detroit Tiger team after what's been a a real tumultuous stretch of roster, off-field issues, ownership change as a result of of circumstances that unfortunately always seem to happen at the worst time, it seems, to these types of franchises that have an owner who's as as committed and passionate as Mike Illich was. Um, What should a Blue Jay fan looking at the Detroit Tiger team today say to themselves in terms of what's on the horizon? How optimistic are you about the Detroit Tigers in 2018 and, and beyond? You know, 2018, I will put it mildly, is going to be an experience. I'm just going to leave it at that as far as how the year will go. Um, My perspective on it is I don't think it's going to go as bad as they're forecasting. I don't think it's going to be pretty. Um, I would love to see, you know, a surprise miracle team that comes out of the gate and does an exceptional job. But, you know, truth be told, a lot of the guys who really were staples of teams in the past, they're transitioning out of the picture. You know, you don't have J.D. Martinez anymore. You don't have Justin Upton anymore. You don't have Alex Avila anymore. You know, listing off all these different guys, Justin Verlander, obviously, you know, he was one of the absolute backbones of the pitching staff. And so having him out of the picture now, it's going to be a young, different team next year. Um, There's still a few people that they're discussing. Will they be around, you know, when the 2018 season comes? Like, 
Jose Iglesias and Ian Kinsler. Both of their names have been kind of up in the air. Um, you know, Miguel Cabrera is working to come back healthy, and we know how effective he can be when he's healthy. So having him at his full strength could be an amazing asset to the team. But it's going to be a very, very interesting year next year. Um, I think the off season is really going to play a lot, as it usually does, into what could eventually happen. Um, they only have one uh, 40-man roster slot open at the moment for the Rule 5 draft. So that's going to really, really be key to fill that with someone who can contribute, someone who can be available and be able to uh, push the team towards a good stage of this rebuild process because we know it can be extremely bumpy, as the fans will be the first to tell you. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, of course, having an opportunity to watch Miguel Cabrera up close is something that, sadly, I've been deprived of, along with many fans who live in Toronto. What can you say about him in what we could basically call the twilight of his career, even though I think pound for pound he still remains one of the most uh, talented and and capable players. What should what should we think about when it comes to Miguel Cabrera at this stage in his career? Well, I believe his contract, um, I want to say it goes through 2022, I think is what he signed for with Detroit. And the thing with Miguel is that he's such a fierce competitor he's not going to slow down until he decides to slow down. And so I think if he's able to keep his body at pace with his mentality, which as we all know, we can feel a certain way, but if our body doesn't keep up, we are obviously we're not going to produce to that level. Um, So for him, I think it's just him getting the chance to show how much he's invested in wanting to see the team do well. I think he'd be an exceptional leader to the younger players with his experience and got a great sense of humor. He's not afraid to, you know, mess with people a little bit to keep things fun. So I think he could be extremely valuable. And um, we're hoping, fingers crossed, that he's able to work through some of the the struggles he had with his back and a few other things from last year and hoping he comes out of the gate strong for next season. Hopefully, indeed. He's certainly a player that deserves every opportunity to, to continue what's been a Hall of Fame caliber career and is one of those generational players that I'm sure everyone in Detroit, from a baseball perspective, appreciates every day that he's able to come out on the field. Emily, I'm curious. Tell my listeners about your experiences with the Athletic and 2080 Baseball. What readers should know about some of the work you're doing and, and ultimately how they can find you on social media. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 2080 Baseball is a group that I've worked with for the last, I would say, about a year and a half. I mean, it's still a relatively new site uh, that focuses strictly on um, player evaluation reports and then also video. And um, so it really gives people a all-access pass to the scouting world, if you will, you know, from the high school level all the way up to, you know, triple-A ball, just to really give fans a chance to look at who some of these guys are, what they look like, what's their pitching style like, what's their swing like at the plate, and it gives them a chance to really experience that firsthand. Um, so, like you had mentioned before, I help with a little bit of all that stuff and um, helping them with that. And then with the athletic, it's really just providing a platform for information from the minor league side of things. Um, we've got an incredible staff who covers the Tigers major league team. And so that we have completely covered. And so this really gives me a platform to bring my little bits of information on the minor league players, the different transactions. Um, I'll try and do player interviews where I'm able to as well and and just really kind of keep things fresh for people and, 
you know, help them see what's ahead in the system. And I'm also trying to keep my, my feelers out to the other systems as well, which has allowed me to, to do some really fun, fun work with the Blue Jays organization. Very, very grateful for that, too. So a lot of fun things in the works for next year. Well, I can't thank you enough for finding the time to stop by and speak with me. Her name is Emily Walden. She does brilliant work writing for The Athletic, and you can find her on Twitter at EmilyWalden2080. I hope to have you back soon. I'd love to invite you to one of my future roundtables and certainly look forward to speaking with you again soon. Yes, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I want to start this uh, edition of the Jay's Journal Roundtable, and I haven't had one, I think, in about a week, gentlemen. But I can tell you the last one I aptly named Perception of Reality, or Reality is Perception. I don't even remember the name anymore because it was all distorted compared to what happened one week since. There's just so much going on. Let's, let's get to the obvious question and frustration that's on Blue Jays fans' minds and in their hearts, the realization that Giancarlo Stanton is now a New York Yankee which I think for purists like ourselves who are such students of baseball and love the game, this isn't really a surprise. But I want to start with you, Dow. What does it mean to finally see a generational player from the NL join what is being billed as a general generational player in judge in the AL to form what could be the most fearsome four or five combination we've seen literally since Maris and Mantle? Oh, wow. I mean, it's uh, it's certainly... It was certainly a shock, and when you heard that uh, that it was the Yankees, and you start thinking about what that lineup looks like with with uh, with those two players plus Sanchez, you know, it, you, you understand how people get a little bit demoralized. But um, you know, I mean, I guess we've seen this before, uh, and maybe this is a, a bit of a a way that uh, baseball is changing back to the way it, that it was in, say, the mid-'90s. It's funny that I, I was just watching something the other day and seeing uh, the 96 Yankees, uh, you know, a team that had, uh, you know, uh, just w- random superstars of the 80s and 90s popping up into random roles. And um, so, you know, I mean, I... I, I, I can understand how people are discouraged, but I threw a tweet out there the other night um, that said, you know, trust me, the Yankees are going to finish in third place next year. And baseball is a great game in the sense that you can go and you can get the National League MVP and move him uh, onto a team with the American League MVP runner-up. And the next year you can win 80 games or 85 or whatever it is and, and fall short. Uh, you know, there's there's 162 games and it's a long season and it, you you don't win it in December. You you win it on the field. So, so I think that if nothing else, I don't think anyone should just be bowing and, and uh, handing the, uh, the American League East pennant or any sort of playoff uh, honors on the on the Yankees quite yet. I think really too. I, um, one thing people people should take note of with the Yankees is that they can also split up all those righty bats um, with Greg Bird, who can also hit for power. So it's it's going to be really a, a a three through six kind of deal more so than just you know or Sanchez, Judge, and uh, Stanton. And the other note that I that I appreciated was that 
everyone was expecting Stanton to go to the West Coast, um, you know, through rumors and, and what have you. But his first statement was that he wanted to be with one of the four ARCS teams, the championship series teams. And lo and behold, he ends up in New York. And it kind of, it kind of makes you chuckle at all the rumors for, for days and, you know, weeks leading up yeah. saying it's going to be a West Coast team. It's going to be his hometown Dodgers or it's going to be the Giants. And then lo and behold, he lands nowhere near the West Coast and in a major market uh, with the Yankees. And I, I had a little chuckle at that for all the, uh, for all the rumors and, and, and hearsay that had been going on uh, leading up to the, the trade. I think, I think what bothers me more than accepting the fact that as an ALEs team, the last thing you need is a player of that caliber to just waltz in and join an already strong, formidable lineup. But should there be some concern, Jesse, that how it was done once again has that odor that familiar baseball odor that we sometimes experience, the whole involvement of, of a team that in the past has done this. You know, the legacy of Loria is not something we need to even start talking about. That could be a separate show on its own. But, I mean, should we be concerned that it was Derek Jeter who pulled the deal that ultimately ended up the Yankees not only getting the player that they wanted, but now have all the social media behind him saying, you truly are the greatest Yankee for making us better. We can't wait till you come back from, you know, to, to the fold from your obligations with Miami. Is that is that a little too conspiratorial, or does it bother you how this happened? I wouldn't say it bothered me, but I think that you can look at it with side eye. I think you can mm-hmm. say, okay, here's your player, here's your superstar, and who do you trade them to? So, yes, I think you can absolutely say that out of the side of your mouth. I think you can give those sidelong glances. And at the same time, we'll see what happens in the coming weeks, the coming months, with regard to future Marlins transactions. But it does help the Yankees. This makes the Yankees better to add the premier slugger in the National League and and maybe the premier slugger in all of baseball. Now you've got the two top power hitters in baseball batting back-to-back. Going right back to your initial question to Tao, should this concern Blue Jays fans? Yes. The Yankees were already a powerhouse last year. They and the Red Sox should be the favorites to win the AL East going into next year. And now the Yankees are better. And so that, that brings up the question, all right, how will we be ready to compete? Stephen Brunt was on Tim and Sid talking about the fact that Blue Jays fans should take some solace, or maybe more than we could possibly imagine, in the pitching. In the fact that even though you've got a, quote, generational player who's in the fold now with the New York Yankees, the fact remains that between... Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton were talking 371 strikeouts last year. These players have shown they can go through stretches where they can be neutralized. Should Blue Jays fans think to themselves, John, that, hey, as long as Stroman, Sanchez, Estrada, and Hap are healthy, there's a chance to compete on the basis of that alone? Yeah, I mean, I think that the pitching is, is, is strong for the, the Jays, but I think they also have to, Jays fans have to understand that you're going to have to embrace or get ready for some sort of injury along the way because we saw two years ago they were abnormally healthy this year they were abnormally injured uh and i think 2018 will bring somewhere in the middle of the road and i don't know about the the quality in terms of the depth uh, of the arms but i think that's something that can concern the uh the yankees fans as well i don't think the yankees are a dominant team on the mound now of course they have the lineup that can that can hit their way through a lot of uh, potential problems, but I think there's a there's definitely a, a warning sign there uh, within the division as well. That the Jays are are probably a better pitching team, and as a result, can probably expect 
to compete more than you know the, the doomsday kind of people are expecting right now while the, the Stanton news is still fresh in their minds. I think it is interesting, too, the changing of the Jays' identity without First Encarnacion, now without Bautista, that we can start to look at the Jays and say, all right, let's look to the pitching first before we look toward the hitting, and let's see what kind of bounce-back campaign Aaron Sanchez supplies. And let us see exactly beginning with that starting rotation before we look toward the bullpen. Can they lead the way? And I think the Blue Jays, you know, the pitching is going to have to be a – it's going to have to be good this year. Um, I, I don't think it it uh, showed how good it could be last year, with the exception, I think, of Marcus Stroman, who who I think has had a couple of good seasons uh, in succession. I think that you know uh, what Aaron Sanchez is able to do, and how those guys are able to sort of be a one-two, and then in front of half and Estrada, and then you know fill in the blank and maybe that blank fills in somewhere further up the rotation. Uh, you know, pitching and defense uh, um, may well be the way that the Blue Jays are going to compete uh, in the, in, in the American league. East. They certainly, uh, the, the, the defense wasn't there last year. Um, and, and they're a team that's going to have to, to get on base as well. You know, uh, and that, that was something where, you know, uh, in, uh, 2015, 2016, they were in the top uh, 10 in the league. I think they were the number one in 2015 in on-base percentage. Uh, and last year, they were 26, I believe. I can someone is going to double check that, but anyways, it, it was in the 20s and it wasn't the low 20s. So, um, you know, I, I think there's a way. Uh, and I think uh, Jesse's point is really well taken about about sort of the the reforming of this team and, and the, and the, you know, the changing of the identity. Um, I think that there's a way for the Blue Jays to do kind of this reset with uh, a couple of half decent players who just improve them a little bit all around the diamond uh, in this off season. And it doesn't have to be blowing your brains out on a JD Martinez uh, contract that in two years, you're going to be killing yourself to try and get rid of. It was mentioned earlier, hey, baseball's returning to 1990s style, right? Bash, bring him in, forget the speed, forget the defense. What if the Jays do decide to go the opposite from how a lot of baseball might go? Whereas we might watch the World Series or we might see how the Yankees are trying to build a powerhouse. And we might say, okay, we need now home run hitters. That's the current way to win in baseball. And the Jays say, let's go against the tide and let us do let us solidify that defense let's make sure that the guys can go and get it let's add more speed let's add more guys who can get on base and let's make over our team to where it still features josh donaldson in the middle of the order but it's a very different toronto blue jays club to reframe the way that we want to win games right i think uh, back to the the point i think J.D. Martinez' uh, potential signing was brought up, and I know that several callers uh, on Jay's talk towards the end of the season all wanted to talk to Mike, uh, Mike Wilner about um, potentially signing J.D. Martinez. And if you are going to play, you know, with, with a, especially youth on the mound and you're looking for speed and defense, that's certainly another, another way that J.D. Martinez would not fit into the mold uh, with this Toronto team. So as much as it might be alluring to want to go out and add a bat in response to John Carlos Stanton 
looking looking further down the road between contract and defensive ability. I mean, not even further down the road with defensive ability. He's already a liability. Um, even the corner outfield spots is something you probably want to tread lightly with or stay away from. I'm a little bit confused, I have to admit, because there's a rich irony, uh, Jesse, in the way that you described what some of the new direction should be, which I completely agree with, by the way. Speed, athleticism, uh, the kind of team that's scrappy, the kind of team that fights for each base, you know, with players that have the ability to not only run, but slap the ball, maybe hit 300, maybe get a 350, 360 on-base percentage. Hmm, kind of sounds like somebody that just recently was acquired by the Seattle Mariners. Isn't isn't D. Gordon a reflection of some of that philosophy, Jesse, that you just pointed out that the Blue Jays should be targeting those kinds of players? That was an interesting acquisition, wasn't it? And we all thought that it was going to herald maybe Seattle bringing in Otani. Uh, no, Ari, I think it gets back to you touched on psychological damage. You've been worried in the past about can the Blue Jays maintain this fan enthusiasm? Will Stanton going to the Yankees, will that damage the enthusiasm? Will the fans return to the Jays next year, and how will they support them? And I think this all adds in. I think you and reflecting whether it's the callers or whether it's reflecting silent folks saying we want the Jays to show us something, uh, entering next year. Now, me, Tal, John, we can, we can sit back and say winning cures. Come April, come May, if they're winning, that means something. But I think that you put your finger on the pulse of the feel of the team here during the offseason. And I think if we take into consideration how every move or every uh, significant trade in Major League Baseball can usher in a kind of cascading effect, I'm wondering, Dow, do you look at, at the Marlins right now and realize that in Starlin Castro and Christian Yelich and in Azuna, there's an opportunity for maybe the Blue Jays to start picking away at the downsizing fire sale carcass that is what's happening right now with Miami. Isn't that an opportunity that you'd like to see maybe the, the team seize on and find a way to creatively get the kinds of players that will help shift the culture so it becomes a, a Mark Shapiro team through and through? Well, yeah, and I think uh, it's funny. A couple of weeks back, I wrote my piece on what an ideal um off-season look like for the Blue Jays, and, and one of the the items I had in there that was a little less specific, I mean, off the top, it said, go get Shohei Otani, so, um, you know, the, I guess it, it, it hasn't exactly held up over the last couple of weeks, but, um, but, uh, but one of the pieces I said was to grab an outfielder from uh, the Marlins, I think o, uh, Ozuna and, and uh, and Yelich are both uh, great players. I, I think even the Marlins, even in whatever it is that they're doing, how it, however it is that they're doing it, are still going to be able to take a look at Christian Yelich and his contract and say, if we trade this away in a year's time, we're going to be killing ourselves to try and find someone who is this good under this sort of good contract. So, I, I I have a sense that that unless they're blown away, they're not going to ne- necessarily trade him. But I'm they're the Marlins, right? I mean, I don't know the the mm-hmm. the 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 daily 4 p.m. rain in Florida clearly does something to people's heads down there. So, but uh, <laughs> if, if if Ozuna is is on the market, and I think he only has a, a year or two left on uh, on uh, of control. You know, I, absolutely. I think the Blue Jays need to be uh, trying to see if if they can pry him out of there, and giving 
uh, mostly secondary uh, uh, prospects and 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 salary relief for the for the Marlins and uh, you know the and uh, the other name you mentioned actually was it was something that occurred to me uh, today as I was rattling my brain around on a train uh, coming back home was. Uh, the idea of Sterling Castro, who I think would be uh, an interesting uh, player for the Blue Jays, uh, a guy who, yeah, is carrying a bit of a contract, but um, but at the same time is uh, is I think uh, you know certainly fits those descriptions of the of the good defense, uh, um, athletic uh, young player uh, who could play in the infield and. You know, so Starlin Castro, you wonder whether or not if they're going to turn around and flip him. But again, who who knows what the what uh, what the Marlins are going to do? Um, yeah, I I think too that with the Yelich talk, um, as you mentioned, you, they're probably going to want a big return for him, and that makes total sense. You know, being 25 years old, controllable, he really has come into his own the last two years, power wise. Uh, he's the model of that kind of, you know, new age, advanced analytics player with, you know, OPS or sorry, his on base percentage being consistently over 360. Uh, and not only will they want to return for that, but it, you know, especially in the light that they gave up or they received very little for Giancarlo Stanton, right? So as much as you might mm-hmm. believe a fire sale is going on in Miami, I think before people start jumping on, we need to go get Osuna or go get Yelich. I think they need to, you know, we're going to need to take a step back and understand that after giving up Stanton for nothing but salary relief and, and a, you know, a B-level prospect or two, um, they're probably going to be looking for a bit more um, to, to make up for that in any deals involving other players. So I think that's that's something that needs to probably will, will need to be evaluated by any management or, or, you know, the brass of any team that would be looking to pursue those kinds of players. Correct me if I'm wrong, too, but we have not seen that blockbuster move under Ross Atkins and Mark Shapiro. We have not seen whether the big trade dealing away big-time prospects or whether it's been that big long-term deal for somebody. They've been, I would call it conservative, in terms of they've got prospects that they value that they want to retain. So either they deal you the prospects that they want to deal or there won't be a trade so far, although that that's subject to change. Finding a free agent. Uh, I, I I don't think free agency is something that Jays fans are going to be particularly thrilled by. If you're expecting a big, big kind of move, I don't, I don't know if any of the guys out there um, would fit into an overpay. I don't think these, this management team likes overpaying at all, ever. So um, I doubt it would be that avenue. If you were to see that blockbuster move, I think it would have to come via uh, the trade market for sure. But, but I'm curious, John, if you know that you're already saving – or, or, or not just a little bit, saving substantially. You've got the best probably one through four starting pitcher uh, contract value in Major League Baseball. I mean, if you consider how much Aaron Sanchez, Marcus Stroman, Estrada, and Happ will make next year, isn't that an argument then that the team should reward again, as, as Jesse mentioned, that, that feeling the fans need to have, that, that psychological confidence of knowing that their organization is going to try and compete for a wild card spot next year, because that's what it's basically going to be, a year of trying to see if they can eke their way into the playoffs and hope that a lot of young players maybe come to spring training, make the team, 
But, John, isn't that a justification then for maybe trying to go after a U Darvish or a big enough name so that the fans can look and say, you know what, we didn't get the the unrealistic acquisition, but we sure as hell got one that we can pin our hats on and look forward to spring training 2018? Perhaps, but we've spoken before about Mark Shapiro and his his kind of uh, not needing to appeal to um, the, yeah. the sense that fans like him. <laughs> so I'm not sure he's going to, to dive, you know, budge off of a plan that him and Ross Atkins might have just to maintain appearances or to send a message. Uh, I think also there's a lot of money tied up in some older bats. I mean, Russell Martin and Troy Tulowitzki, that's a lot of money uh, between those two guys. If you want, uh, you know, Donaldson long-term, that's going to cost. Those young arms you mentioned might be controllable right now, so you might want to be in win-now mode, but what happens when Boba Shett and Vlad Guerrero Jr. come up, they're controllable, and then you've got to pay those young arms. There's a lot of different kind of machinations or situations uh, that, that I think they need to compute and go over um, if you're, you can be in win-now mode, but then if that means signing a guy to an eight-year deal at $25 million per, which young pitcher are you letting go once they come up um, after arbitration and, and into free agency? You know, it, there's, there's, I think, a lot of things – that the front office needs to consider, and I would probably lean more towards waiting out the the bigger contracts uh, uh, that are in the field, and then, you know, once you have your younger bats up and they're controllable, and you can sign some of your 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 elite young starting pitching to their big deals, and that's what I would probably drive into win now mode. Once I've got multiple players both on the mound and in the field that are signed or controllable. Um, without kind of these aging players on massive deals that really throw a wrench into any kind of progression or any any moving forward that this team can really do. And I think the you know this is a this is a tough one sometimes to convey. And I I, I, I get called out a couple of times for somehow being uh, a, a snob or an elitist or something along those lines because I. I you know, my my thought is, I don't want the front office to be listening to the fans, um, because the fans, you know, I don't think that by virtue of being a fan that you are irrational. But I think that there are a lot who simply look at something like the Stanton signing and say, "Well, I want that. I want I want you to go and blow mm-hmm. your brains out. I want I want for an owner who has." billions of dollars and um, no sense of decorum or or ability to stop themselves from from spending it like I would want them to spend it. And it's like, you know, if we pull ourselves back into this astral plane and this sort of level of reality, I, I want a front office who's going to, to have a plan uh, to to stick with it to the extent that uh, that they see that it's working and to, to adapt it uh, to whatever, you know, is happening around them, but not to, to go too far off the deep end. And, you know, one, one other point that I would make is, is that I, people talk about a, a big splash and how much they want a big splash. And I don't know, maybe, maybe the, the last Marlins deal is far enough in the rearview mirror that people uh, don't 
totally remember it, but I do mm-hmm. feel like that was the one where the Blue Jays won the off season and were terrible the next year. So I, I, I wonder if it's not that there would be cynicism, but I think people would be wise to the fact that simply going out and getting a bunch of name brand uh, former All Star players and bringing them into your in, in, into your team, it's not necessarily going to be the thing that that turns the franchise around and. Frankly, it can be something that ultimately hurts them. So yeah. I think holding mm-hmm. holding the line on on the prospects and 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 holding the line on the plan for the next two years until we figure out how great um, Vladdy and 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 Bobichet can be is is the right approach. I think it's yeah, all short term versus long term. In terms of before, it was let's win for this year. And they did, and they got to the ALCS in back-to-back years. Uh, and you saw what it cost, and you saw what it led to, and you see where we are right now. I think right now we're seeing a much more long-term sort of thinking and planning. The development, the drafting, and the free agent signing that I get a chance to see in the minor leagues, I see a lot more long-term things at work, where they're saying, we're going to put in some work, it's going to take time, and we feel down the line in several years this is going to pay off, and pay off hugely, pay off successfully, uh, that they are dedicating to something that you might not see the results of tomorrow. But that gets mm. frustrating at the major league level. And as was mentioned, there, there are still massive contracts for them to think about. But I do think that they are looking much forward. They are looking a little farther out to the horizon than the fans, as can be expected. Right, and I think that the, the big key to, to the last three times they've really gone for it, the one time it succeeded was during the season, when they knew they were good, and they added uh, some players. Um, and that was during you know, the Anthopolis <clears throat> run at the deadline there. The last two times they've done it in the offseason, and you know, taking the, the, the offseason with the Marlins was, was the last time, and of course the time before that when they went out and signed A.J. Burnett and B.J. Ryan and Benji Molina and Troy Gloss in the Ooh. same offseason. Mm-hmm. And they spent a bunch of money that offseason. I mean, I'm, I'm not even a Jays fan. Um, I'm the resident Cubs fan here. And that season, Dad and I, I love baseball so much, Dad and I bought season's tickets. And we went to all the games together just to enjoy the ball, and we thought it would be a great team, so it would be a good atmosphere. And, you know, look how that worked out as well, right? So when you go into it in the off season, and you're not exactly sure how the team is that you have on the field, uh, or the team you presently have is going to be on the field, that's, that's a much higher risk as opposed to trading in season and acquiring some, some big stars, perhaps paying a little more to do it um, to win now in season at the deadline. But it's it's more of a, a sure thing that you know you're already a contender and you're just adding on to it. There's no sign that this Jays team is a contender in the American League right now, and you know going out and buying you know buying a, a an expensive bat that could weigh you down in in the coming years if they're aging on the back end of a, a long contract. It just seems like a way to far too much of a risk to take right now, especially when the reward may may not even end up making you a contender anyway. It just doesn't seem like the risk-reward balance uh, makes any sense. So I'm wondering then, is it a case of having a real legitimate identity crisis as a team? Because really, we're talking about a team that you could easily argue has a, has a glass half full 
and simply needs to address some deficiencies, some depth areas, and on the strength of their starting staff and their and their relief pitching can actually go into 2018 with an opportunity to take a shot at the wild card. And I don't think we would disagree with that if these upgrades were to take place. On the other hand, we can easily look at this team and say, look at all the things they don't have. And why would you go ahead and spend unnecessarily this year when you can go ahead and maybe make the necessary strategic trades and shore yourself up to be the kind of young and exciting team that that this city has now seen in the form of its of its hockey team, which is one where people can say there's going to be a little bit of pain and we'll move forward. But then how, again, do we reconcile that when Rogers came out recently and, and basically let it slip or pronounce whatever you want to interpret it, that they were interested in potentially selling the franchise? Jesse, let's go back on the theme of fan confidence. What does it say to the fans of this team when there's this much confusion, uncertainty, and no palpable sense that they are going to do something that will bring any kind of immediate pleasure or satisfaction to to hardcore fans. I think uncertainty breeds uncertainty. I think that's it at its core. Because we can find an identity there. We can say that Marcus Stroman is one of the, t- uh, I'd say, headline personalities in the game. Yes. And mm-hmm. so you've got something there with him. And Josh Donaldson has a headline personality. And you've got something there with him. And you can look at the Blue Jays and say, I know how they want to win. And I know the players that the fans know. Um, So, yes, there is that uncertainty that bubbles around off the field. But in the end, if you're a fan, I think you look at the ownership situation and maybe you speculate. But it's the players that your eyes revert back to. Will the fans accept going into a year where the team might decide to use not one but two rookie outfielders, even though on some level, if they're able to address maybe the center field position by maybe considering someone as an upgrade to Kevin Pillar, would it be so difficult to start a season with Anthony Alford and Teoscar Hernandez as two young, rugged, truly athletic types that you might want to see when you go to watch baseball in Toronto? I would be shocked if they did. I would be stunned if they opened the season with both of those guys and it would have to be because they had such a stellar march. Um, I think that we will see them in Toronto, but uh, maybe one on opening day. But I think both of them, we've got to wait till May, June, July. Yeah, I think you're gonna. You're yeah. gonna see spring training is gonna bring that competition um, for for that that third spot. I think I, I don't see why they wouldn't run um, with with Steve Pierce and you know Kevin Pillar as, as their kind of locks to start the season at least. Um, I, but I, I do think that Teoscar Hernandez will have a very good shot at making this team. Um, and I think, you know what, I think he, he could be someone that surprises people in terms of, <clears throat> pardon me, not necessarily being a, 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 a great hitter, but I think you'll see, we saw glimpses uh, when he came up in September, and I think he could, he could be a guy who, uh, if he can find a way to, you know, adjust to the pitcher's adjustments, as they, they say, I get the game of adjustments. Um, I think he could have sustained success at the major league level. He really, he really did uh, bring it in September, and uh, now it's about, you know, he's going to learn to see guys multiple times throughout the course of a season, especially within the division, and how does he adapt there. And if he can do that, I think he could be a, a solid piece and a, and a productive hitter for the Blue Jays. Yeah, I, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. I, I don't See Anthony Alford making the uh, making the team out of the spring training, um, and and but I uh, you know I think the the 
the issue underpinning all of this is that there is a little bit of a uh, an overflow, I guess, of of uh, these players who, you know, if you are going to talk about bringing bringing in Alfred and and Teoscar Hernandez and uh, then you know where are you playing Steve Pierce and what are you what are you doing with Kendris Morales and and is uh, um, are are they going to get the same uh, season um, that, that they got last year uh, out of um, good lord I'm forgetting his name <laughs> out of uh, Justin Smoke yeah out of Justin mm-hmm. Smoke. Um, uh, you know, are you going to? Uh, so, you know, there's a lot that's up in the air uh, with that. Uh, would would fans embrace it? Um, I, I, I mean, I don't get that sense, and I and and I do feel like, you know, the the comparing ourselves to the to the Yankees and the and the Red Sox um, and, and and being concerned that we're being kind of left behind in the off season by them. Uh, I, I think that there is going to be angst to start the season, uh, uh, almost regardless of, of who it is or what they bring in or what it is that they do. And it's funny how much can turn on the health of one player because we know when Devin Travis is healthy, he can be one heck of a second baseman, especially mm-hmm. at the plate, uh, for a guy who, who plays up the middle. And, you know, having him as a spark plug in, in your lineup could make you a very effective. I mean, the, the hitters are not. Uh, it, it's not a terrible lineup. Fans are acting as if the Yankees are are miles ahead, and they're probably well ahead because of all the power they have. Uh, but I mean, remember the, the Red Sox struggled mightily with power last year. They just had a ton yeah. of guys who could do a lot of different things um, at the plate, and they were very deep. But I mean, if Russell Martin can bounce back, and he, you know, he he's always someone who can get on base at a fairly high clip, and. Justin Smoke had a big year. If Travis is back healthy, then you've got Donaldson. I mean, there's there's definitely something there for the Blue Jays, and I'm not I'm not sure that the the lineup is as bleak as potentially people think. I think there's a lot of recency bias that's happening right now with the Stanton deal that's bleeding over into the Yankees are great, therefore the Jays aren't uh, kind of deal. I think there's kind of you know that that miscalculation or, or uh, false equivalency. So I think when everyone steps back, takes a deep breath, I think the Jays could have something. And then if they, they do find themselves winning ball games, whether it be through pitching and defense or if you know they can stay healthy and, and hit the ball uh, fairly well top to bottom, then there's no reason they can't go during the season again and acquire someone to bolster that lineup or perhaps bolster the bullpen because I'm not sure you're going to see you know everyone, or like guys like Ryan Tapera uh, replicate their success out in the bullpen. So um, I think that the bullpen could be an issue if people kind of regress. And But I could also see this team winning a, a bunch of ball games if they're healthy. I, I don't see cause for panic, but I also wouldn't be overly confident, if that makes any sense. And, and I think management understands that once we shattered uh, two myths last year, one, the fact that the Blue Jays were a home run hitting team, which was something that I think was a detriment to management by having fans expect that. Um, although they may have displayed extraordinary power during that memorable 2015 run and in the playoffs, and then, of course, in various parts of 2016, this is a team that was relying far too often on, on the home run ball and was punished for it repeatedly over and over again when it came to runners in scoring position, when it came to uh, a lack of speed. 
And then the other myth, of course, that was shattered was that they were a, a fine upper echelon defensive team, which we, we quickly appreciated just how certain players had completely bottomed out when it came to providing uh, plus defense. And again, average defense will only get you so far. If you've got a team that has players who can, who can cover themselves responsibly when it comes to the, the defensive level of, uh, of, of expectation from previous years, as well as ones that can run and create opportunities on base. Dow, would you be more than happy to come and watch a Blue Jays team that isn't known for power, but is known for creating havoc on the bases and being known as the kind of team that can get in pitchers' heads and cause all sorts of errors and other all sorts of goodies that baseball provides? Well, I'm not sure that speed necessarily plays that way nearly as much anymore. I mean, uh, for me, the sort of speed that that matters to me is – the guys who are able to score from first or to go first to third or to, to take the extra base. And, and there, there are players who are decent players in the Jays lineup who, um, just by virtue of the fact that you had them stacked up one after the other, where you had uh, Josh Donaldson, who was hobbled last year, hitting in front of Jose Batista, who, was, who didn't have his legs under him anymore, who was hitting in front of... Uh, um, Kendris Morales, who's never had legs, and and then Justin <laughs> Smoke, and you just you just line all of that up, and at one point there was Troy Tulowitzki in there as well. Like it's just if you can break that lineup up a little bit with guys who you know on a single or on a double can make things happen on the base pass. Sure. Um, that 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 to me is it's not just about guys who are you know uh, who are who are slap bunting stuff and, and trying to go screaming up the line or trying to, to steal bases. Like, uh, um, it, it, you know, look, I, I love home runs and I would love to see this team hit home runs the way they did a couple of years ago. Um, and they were legitimately a home run hitting team, but I also want to see them be able to, to run the bases and, and to be able to, to split up some of, um, those slow runners and somehow in, in my rant about slow runners uh, you know Steve Pierce escapes because he's apparently a speedster um, you know so I, I just uh, I, again it, it, it was it was a crappy brand of baseball that they played last year and it was awful to watch at times and and I I, I think I think that the front office knew it last year I think they know it now Um and I think the question is, uh, can they turn over a couple of positions this year and a couple of positions next year? Because if you go back two years ago, the New York Yankees were not the juggernaut who were being handed uh, their championship rings in the winter. They were a team that was a bit of a mess, in decline. How are they going to turn this around? And, you know, they managed to turn over their roster I think fairly significantly, or certainly the starters uh, within the space of a couple of years. I think that's what the Blue Jays have got to start to, to look towards doing, and, and this is year one. I think you can do that turnover and still keep a Josh Donaldson and still keep your hopes up for an 88-win season that sees you somehow playing game 163. Health. There are not going to be too many teams that are successful when you suffer the sorts of ailments that they suffered from player to player, if they get better health, which stands to reason they should, just a little bit, that'll help them out 
and I agree, you couple it with just tweaks here or there, you can snag a wild card spot. Yeah, I mean, they were they were abnormally, as I mentioned, they were abnormal, especially on the mound. Um, just a, a lot of man games lost and starts lost. And I think that, uh, you know, Devin Travis was out, and it just seemed like that he was supposed to come back at X date, and then it was Y, and it just kept getting pushed back and back until it, just, it never happened. So um, I think, again, that, that to me is, or Devin Travis to me might be the, the turning point if the Jays have one guy who can come back and, and really get them going, set the table, uh, it, it would be Devin Travis. And, and this lineup is, is, as I mentioned, fully capable of, of hitting. So if they can do that and the pitchers stay healthy, um, they could definitely sneak into the race and then, you know, you go out and you, you sign your – or you yeah. trade for some guys around the deadline to, to perhaps bolster your chances – of uh, of what could be if they were in the race, you'd you'd think it would likely be an all AL East uh, wild card game. Um, once again, between the the Red Sox and Yankees being so dominant as well. No question, and uh, obviously no Travis and no Sanchez, and still a 76 win season. Some days I just catch myself asking how they even managed to finish with as many wins as they had, considering that if not for Josh Donaldson coming back and hitting like his MVP year. All those, all those players being unavailable, it was a, it was a tragic season. So let's let's keep our eyes and ears open to see what happens next. It will definitely make for a very intriguing stretch of time now that we're into the winter meetings, and I have no doubt we'll have a lot more to say on this. Before I wrap up our table, I, I want to get some impressions from all three of you. You know, I myself remember baseball in the '80s growing up as a wee lad, and it was um, it was quite an extraordinary time because there were certain players that were like archetypes and uh, almost like heroes and villains in storybooks. And I remember that when it came to being a Blue Jays fan, one of the most difficult things to experience was having Paul Molitor and Robin Yount come to play, uh, you know, in your city or having to face Don Mattingly or, or George Brett, the types of hitters that you knew were going to be Hall of Fame caliber when healthy and they did extraordinary things. Two of them happened to be on the same team and are now in the Hall of Fame in Alan Trammell and Jack Morris. And I want to go around the table and get your impressions of, of first of all, whether you think they both should be in the Hall of Fame and uh, maybe some memories that, that, that you can uh, discuss or, or relate to as to why they were such extraordinary players, maybe the likes that we'll never see again. Let, let's start with you, John. Uh, absolutely. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that, that Jack Morris uh, is a Hall of Famer. And you want to you want to talk about the old school kind of workhorse, uh, eat up innings and just throw throw pitches until your heart falls off. Um, mm. That you know Jack Morris personified that. I remember watching. Um, I was born in '91, so I was barely alive for the '92 '93 World Series. But my grandfather had these VHS tapes, and they were about an hour long each, oh, one wow. for '92 and one for '93. They had the commentary, you know, and they they had highlights for you know the first five minutes were on the ALCSs and then the rest of it was all World Series of progression through and you know they had the nice production the music and that was really my intro um, for the, the the one World Series that I believe I believe it was one that Jack Morris won in Toronto uh, correct me if I'm wrong um, and it, that was how I learned about uh, Morris because I'm, I'm too young I wouldn't have seen him or remembered him all that well uh, from from independent recollection. So it was uh, definitely, you look at his career, 
um, and you look at his just his personality and his work ethic on the mound. I mean, he had the numbers, and he certainly had, um, you know, that kind of determination to back it up. So it's great to see mm-hmm. uh, Jack inducted uh, into the Hall of Fame for sure. Yeah, I might not be the person to ask about this. Maybe it's the remnants of the 1987 <laughs> season uh, that that kind of uh, overshadow this. Um, uh, I definitely. I, I definitely wasn't a, a fan of, of Morris as a as a Hall of Fame candidate. Um, I, I just, you know, he goes in and is now the uh, the Hall of Famer with the highest ERA. Uh, I don't buy the notion that he was a player who, who pitched to the score. Um, you know, uh, even... Uh, he, uh, he he certainly had some triumphs, and and I think um, if I allow, you know, I'm a big hall guy, so if the hall were a big hall, then I would say, yeah, sure, Jack Morris. But I would also, yeah. I would say Ted Simmons before I would say Jack Morris. I would say Ted Simmons before I would say Alan Trammell. Frankly, uh, Trammell, this is my this is my weird conspiracy theory sort of rationale for why I can't trust the numbers on Trammell. Uh, I feel like the, I, I don't trust the defensive metrics that build up war for historical players. And I think that they possibly overrate uh, a player like Trammell. I think that they overrate a player like, uh, like Omar Vizcal. Um, so, and I also believe that they used to leave the grass super, super long in Tiger Stadium so that Alan Trammell could get to more balls. And I don't think that Alan Trammell, I don't think that Alan Trammell's defense could hold a candle to Tony Fernandez's defense. So, oh, um, if you're, if you're, if you're going to tell me that Alan Trammell was the, was, you know, amongst the best defensive shortstops of the of the eighties, I, I just I'm not sure that I buy that. So uh, again, I recognize I'm being obstinate. I know that all the people who are smarter than me are are thrilled that he got in. So uh, you know, God bless the 1987 Tigers. May they rot someplace. <laughs> Here's my perspective, and I won't argue. But I will say, for purposes of just utter transparency, I grew up in, uh, I would say, Alan Trammell's my favorite player. He was my idol growing up. I was a shortstop. I decided that the Detroit Tigers were my favorite team growing up outside of Washington, D.C. I rejected the Baltimore Orioles, and I latched on to Trammell and Whitaker and the Tigers. Each year for my birthday or for Hanukkah, I would get tickets from my parents to go see the Orioles play the Tigers at Memorial Stadium and then later Camden Yards. And usually, the game that we went to, Trammell would get a day off. So, but I think that he was my favorite player, and I'm happy to see him in. With regards to Jack Morris, there's the story of him and Jennifer Fry, if I'm remembering right, that troubles me. Um, yeah, thanks for bringing I, that up. That's a great point. Yeah, that's true. The 1991 World Series, Game 7, and then I think a lot of folks 
outside of Toronto forget that the very next World Series game, 1992 World Series Game 1, Zach Morris is back on the mound. It's not like his career ended after the 91 Game 7. I think that elevated him to another level. If Don Larson had had the regular season career of Jack Morris, he would have been put in the Hall of Fame with his perfect game. Um, but I'm a big Hall guy in terms of I see it as a museum and a privately owned museum. And if they want to attract fans, and they want to bring people to Cooperstown to celebrate baseball history, I say you do whatever you can to do that. Next year, bring in all the Detroit Tigers fans. And of a conspiracy bent, I say every year, the Hall of Fame should pick a fan base and do what they can to bring that fan base out to Cooperstown to celebrate baseball history. Well, and, and I'm also curious, and, and one of the one of the stories that have been trending in, in the last few days in particular was that of Marvin Miller, whom many modern-day giants and builders in the game have said he is arguably one of the three most important people in baseball in the modern era by virtue of what he did as executive director of the Players' Union, how he basically ushered in the true era of what we know as what is now known as modern free agency and having players treated with respect and dignity as employees rather than commodities to be traded against their own will. Uh, Jesse, what are your thoughts about the fact that his own sport refuses, whether it's on the Veterans Committee, whether it was when he was eligible to be originally in the Hall of Fame? Why is it that Cooperstown is having such a hard time recognizing someone on the side of union. Is it a socialist argument? Do they not like the idea that he emancipated players' destinies and, and earning capacity? What is it that keeps him out of the Hall of Fame? No, I think you got it. I think that's exactly it. I think it's who he was and what he did, and I think he should be in. Yeah, there's no question that Marvin Miller, frankly, if you were to make it a small Hall of Fame and uh, boot about half the people who are in there out of there, and there's plenty of people on the builder's side who certainly deserve to be booted out of the Hall of Fame uh, for some of the fundamental damage that they did to it. Um, you know, I, I, it, Marvin Miller would still belong in the inner circle of, of, of Hall of Famers as someone who had such a, a, a vital role in, in, in really changing the game, and I think changing the game uh, for the better. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I just, I, I think that um, after this one, I think I, I probably said this to myself after the last time he didn't get in on the veterans vote is just to accept the fact that he's never going to get in um and uh and and i think uh, that's that's maybe the in some ways the greatest tribute that people can pay to him at this point is just to accept the fact that this is such a flawed institution that he's mm -hmm. too good for it and 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 uh and move on from there and i think one of the things that people need to look at is or the or one of the one of the perspectives you can you take on this is imagine baseball uh, today, especially for for younger people who, of course, like I I was never around or I wasn't born when Marvin Miller was was executive director, um, but you read about the things that happened during his tenure and you compare baseball what it is what it is now to what it would have been before those fundamental yeah. changes to the game and think about how different the game would be. I mean, it's, it's literally unfathomable for me to, to understand a game without a collective bargaining agreement or, you know, their, their reserve clauses that, that locked players in certain markets. It's, 
you know, the lack of mobility that, that he helped uh, free up um, and allow players to move. It's just, it's something that in modern day sports, you just literally can't imagine because you've, you've seen it happen or you've seen it this way for so long. And it was really him that was so instrumental in making that um, or making those changes. Well, unfortunately, we have to live with some injustices in this world, but at least spreading the awareness in a social media era, it's amazing how quickly perception can gather and, and like minds can find each other. And who knows, maybe we will see some, some change on that front. But uh, it will remain controversial for a reason. It has been that way, and especially now that the, the steroid era luminaries, if you will, are being considered into the Hall of Fame. There'll be plenty more to talk about on future roundtables. Gentlemen, let's wrap this up by going around and uh, getting an update on what you're working on and how my listeners can find you on social media. Let's start with you, John. What's cooking on your end, and, and how can fans find you? Well, I'm st- uh, I'm a producer at uh, Sportsnet 590, the fan. Um, you can find me on Twitter, at John Reed 590. Uh, if there's multiple John Reeds, and you, you throw an H in there, you can't find me. I've got a Cubs, Cubs picture as my kind of profile picture. Um, so I'll probably be the only person, the fan, that you can catch that way. And uh, I, I'm still working away producing shows and uh, working my way through the fan and, and uh, host a tennis podcast as well um, with one of my coworkers. So I post everything there. Let's go to you, uh, Jesse. What, so what's been, what have you been working on lately, and how can people find you? The third edition of my baseball thesaurus should be getting released from the publisher within the span of only a couple of weeks now, so I'm I'm a little excited about that. But aside from that, I've been generally adhering to rule one of Twitter, which is don't tweet. Uh, During the minor league season, I love letting everyone know what's going on with the Lansing Lugnuts and what's letting everyone know, let everyone know what's going on within the whole organization. In the offseason, I read everything I can about what's happening. I broadcast Central Michigan basketball. I just enjoy myself as a spectator. Good stuff, good stuff. Look, looking forward to catching up on that latest edition. Uh, Dow, why don't you finish things up for us by uh, telling what kind of articles you've got on the horizon? Uh, well, uh, I, hopefully I'm reacting to all of the brilliant moves made by the front office in the uh, coming uh, <laughs> weeks. I'm, and, and just uh, uh, regaling fans with how this is a, a return to the salad years and, and failing that, uh, trying to find uh, the sunshine seeping through the cracks of uh, and, and illuminating the darkness. But, um, yeah, uh, uh, about every two weeks I'm putting something up on, on Sportsnet, Um uh, I, at the beginning of the winter, vaguely thought about the idea that I'd potentially write about the Ottawa Senators through the winter. And uh, if anyone is feeling bad about the state of the Blue Jays, um, oh let me tell you about uh, what the state of the Ottawa Senators is right now. Um, so that won't happen. But uh, you can occasionally find me uh, tweeting about uh, about the Senators and West Ham United and uh, curling and uh, and what else and the Raptors and uh, every so often about the Blue Jays and people who don't put their snow tires on and who run into the back of my car on Grey Cup <laughs> Sunday and drive away and leave me with three thousand dollars of damage. So that's uh, some of the stuff that uh, I'm doing. And uh, Dow Steve is the uh, the Twitter handle, but uh, people probably already know that. Very nice, very nice. And I'm glad that we could mention 
classic Blue Jays like Tony Fernandez and Dave Steed, because for every villain, there was a hero. And for Blue Jays fans, those two were truly heroes against uh, Trammell and Morris back in the day. I want to thank all three of you. You've been listening to John Reed from the Fan 590, Dow Steve at Sportsnet, and Jesse goldberg Strausler, the voice of the Lansing Lugnuts author and very, very extraordinary soothsayer when it comes to minor league action. I'm going to have you on the show again soon because we're going to continue to do just that here on the Jays Journal Podcast. We're going to look to the future. We're going to talk about what the youth movement is all about and hopefully give fans a reason to hang in there, especially at a time when there's so much happiness and joy, joy going on in the city, football, soccer, uh, hockey, uh, even basketball, which is criminally not talked about as much as it should because it's such an extraordinary renaissance going on for the Toronto Raptors. I want to thank you all again for joining me here on the Jays Journal Podcast Roundtable. Have a great night. Thank you. Thanks, Ari. Thanks for having me on, Ari. Appreciate it.